0: Hey, everybody. Uh, Before we get started, I just wanted to say, if you are a fan of the show and get something out of it, please consider supporting it on Patreon. Even something as little as a dollar a month really goes a long way. So, thank you. Enjoy the show. Why should I be frightened of dying? See no reason for it. You better go sometime. Hello, welcome to the Sam Reed's Near-Death Experiences podcast. Hope you all are doing well, and thank you very much for listening today. I'm very excited to get into this episode. It is going to be quite a different type of episode that, uh, than the others that I've done. You will notice that this is a part two of Melanie's Near-Death Experience. And if you haven't heard part one, I would highly recommend you go check out that that episode because it's going to set up what we're talking about today, not only by actually reading what her experience was, which would help this make a lot more sense, but also trying to describe why I am going into such depth to discuss it. And so uh, the reason this episode will be quite different is because I'm really laser focused in on one a well, small aspect of her experience, but I think it is quite deep and quite important to understand. And that is from the beginning of her her NDE, she described her soul as being a, a thin thread of purple frost. And so this episode will be essentially a symbolic history of the color purple and all of its uses and the mythology and the ideas and associations, connections that surround this one color. And so it's going to be quite in-depth, but I think it is very illuminating for why a NDE or spiritual experience would use a particular color to express itself. Why was Melanie's soul or essential being Purple and not red, or green or blue. Uh, I think there's a reason there, and and that is what this podcast, this episode is going to explore. So I hope you all enjoy it, and I think there's there's a lot of fascinating things for us to discuss and learn about, and there's certainly a lot that I learned about just by digging into, to this one element of of someone 's n d e and just so i don't want to freak you all out, I am not going to break down her entire experience word by word and have a like thirty episode long mini series of each aspect of her n d e but this one proved to be quite a a a deep barrel to to dive into, and so uh it was very fun to do and uh, but just know I'm not going to, to get way too granular with it from, from here on out. But I imagine there will be one or two more episodes uh, talking about Melanie's experience. Because like I said, I want to really try to flesh out and connect with her experience and, and try to make sense of it. But also what, it, what we can learn about ourselves from it. Okay, so we're going to continue our discussion of Melanie's near-death experience from where we left off last time and didn't get too far. Like I said, I'm taking my time with this, really want to get into the the nitty-gritty, the granular aspect of it to see what we can understand. Now, the methodology that I'm using here obviously has a lot of limitations because if we're going to be dealing with any symbolic material, and this goes for this near-death experience and any of the ones that I've talked, to, talked about in the past, if you're going to be trying to figure out what they mean, ideally you would want to get the individual's personal associations with, you know, a, a given Image a given symbol what what it means to them, but obviously I can't ask them any personal questions about what it means to them because I don't have any way of contacting them and and that would be a whole process, although it would be interesting and and ideally if if you'd want to try and understand what what these symbolic forms these symbolic images what it means to the individual because that would be the basis, and then you could expand out from there into the more global, cultural, mythological levels of that are common to mankind, and, and kind of expand from the individual out to perhaps all of us. But because I don't have access to that, what we have to do is is to look at these broad... Uh, all-encompassing, general sort of symbols and mythologisms and their meanings to try and understand what what aspects of a near-death experience might mean. And again, the the reason I'm doing this is to, so we can start to acquaint ourselves with this process, because each near-death experience is different. Each near-death experience seems to be tailor-made for the individual that undergoes it. And so, obviously, we're dealing with something that is quite personal, quite, well, individual. And the only way to make that mean anything for the rest of us is to try and discuss a way of, of getting... Used to dealing with some of the common elements of a uh, symbolic language that near-death experiences seem to speak, and that can involve getting quite, <laughs> quite—I uh, don't know—narrow in some of the focus of of the discussion ab- around certain, certain ideas, certain formations that we encounter. In this case, we didn't get much farther than the main sentence description of, of what Melanie's experience kind of started out uh, started out as, and, and that was, the essence of me was reduced to a simple thread of purple frost about 15 centimeters long. So we left off after a simple thread... <laughs> and now we will continue on to purple now th- what i'm going to try and do based on what we discussed in the previous episode is to to try and amplify this this idea of purple right what does purple mean as a color why of of all the different colors that the experience could have chosen to represent to Melanie what was going on. Why did it pick purple? And what does it mean? How has it been used throughout history? How has it been used cross-culturally in in different societies, uh, different historical time periods? How has the meaning of the the color changed over time? And I, I feel like if we can start to weave this web around around this central idea of purple that will give us some idea of, of what perhaps the meaning being expressed by Melanie's experience is. Like I said, you know, maybe purple is her favorite color, I don't know, but, but this is at least a general way that we can, can relate to her experience in a, a, a broadly connected human sort of way. What does what purple mean in the human experience that that is common to all mankind? And, and what, what can we learn from that? So, I am going to start trying to weave that web and start trying to amplify that symbol. And I think what you'll start to see as we pick it apart, start to understand the different aspects of purple and its different meanings that there's there's a coherence around it. That it's not just whimsy and and personal choice that <laughs> that surrounds this the use of this color in the experience, but it does have a broad connected meaning that definitely applies in this circumstance and is quite appropriate for how it appears in in Melanie's experience. And we'll also see that because people's associations are not necessarily arbitrary they're not necessarily made up on the spot for i don't know political convenience or or power or some kind of conniving machiavellian reason people's associations with certain symbolic forms and images are actually Somewhat objective they they come from the psyche and and occur to the individual so there's it's not something that is entirely subjective but there's a bit of that that kernel of of the psychological reality of a given image stimulus uh, symbol or in this case a color. So to discuss the color purple, I'm going to draw on a lot of the information that I found in the Wikipedia entry for purple, which is kind of funny to think that color, there's history and there's culture and there's all sorts of things associated with colors. We're kind of spoiled by them. We don't really think about them, but there's they're so much wrapped up in just a single color, like purple. So. Um. Yeah, I'm going to start quite general, just try to get a basic feeling for what we're going to be dealing with, and then I will get into more of the specifics with historical uses and specific cultural uses and how they, how they add to our understanding of the use of purple in Melanie's experience or how they perhaps differ. Um, but I think we'll see, like I said, that... They, they line up quite well. So this is coming from, from the, the intro to the Wikipedia entry for the color purple. Purple refers to any variety of colors with a hue between red and blue. Purple is closely associated with violet. In optics, purple and violet refer to colors that look similar. But purples are a mixture of red light and blue or violet light whereas violets are spectral colors of single wavelengths of light. In common usage, both refer to colors that are between red and blue in hue, with purples closer to red and violets closer to blue. Similarly, in the traditional painter's color wheel, purple and violet are both placed between red and blue, with purple closer to red. Purple has long been associated with royalty, originally because Tyrian purple dye was extremely expensive in antiquity. Purple was the color worn by Roman magistrates. It became the imperial color worn by the rulers of the Byzantine Empire and the Holy Roman Empire, and later by Roman Catholic bishops. Similarly, in Japan, the color is traditionally associated with the emperor and aristocracy. According to contemporary surveys in Europe and the United States, Purple is the color most often associated with royalty, magic, mystery, and piety. Okay, so just from that, we can start to get a taste of some of the associations that are linked with purple and some of the the things that we'll get to dive into at greater lengths here as we go along. Before we got too far, though, I just wanted to point out that uh, before like we get into some of the history and culture and some of that stuff, just scientifically speaking, on uh, speaking in terms of optics, purple is not a spectral color. I'm going to read this real quick from further on in the Wikipedia. Purple, unlike violet, is not one of the colors of the visible spectrum. It was not one of the colors of the rainbow identified by Isaac Newton, and it does not have its own wavelength of light. For this reason, it is called a non-spectral color. It exists in culture and art, but not in the same way that violet does in optics. It is simply a combination and various proportions of two primary colors, red and blue. Okay, so I know this <laughs> might be a bit of a stretch and perhaps a poetic way of framing this, but just from the fact that we're dealing with purple, based on that description of how it doesn't quite fit into the let's say the spectral field of optics and and the uh, uh, spectrum of visible light It, it doesn't purple is not a category in the scientific model of of light and and from what that perhaps suggests it is something that is sort of a amalgam or a mongrel of of red and blue, or a bringing together of opposites, but I thought that might be worth at least pointing out that it is a category that we use, and obviously purple's a thing, and we identify, but it doesn't fit in with the strict <laughs> scientific uh, definition of the uh, spectrum of, of visible light, which I thought was interesting because. I mean that's probably just a poetic sort of i don't know uh, coincidence that here again, even with the near death experience we're we're dealing with something that doesn't fit into the strict scientific way of viewing the world, and you know that's i'm I'm fine with just saying that's a coincidence. I'm not going to suggest that there's anything more than that, but it's interesting nonetheless that that purple is such a great indicator of of what we're actually dealing with in this near death experience. That it is something that does not fit into the scientific model. That does not fit into any established uh, theory, right? It's something that is squishy. That's kind of that doesn't fit. That that people can talk about. People have a word for, but does not fit into the strict sort of scientific worldview and and like i said it's it's this this unifier of this tension between red and blue which as we've mentioned before in several episodes that symbols of unity that bring together opposites are quite meaningful quite transcendental and they do come up quite frequently in near-death experiences so I don't want to belabor that too much, but I thought I would point it out before we get into some of the more historical, cultural-type things that even on a scientific basis, purple doesn't doesn't quite fit. It's in between, in between categories. And if you'll remember back to Jim's near-death experience, which was a while back, the place that he went to He called it the in-between. So that idea of being between categories, between classification, that is very resonant with near-death experiences, I think. Okay, so I wanted to reiterate real quick some of the words that were associated with purple there at the end of that reading that I did. According to contemporary surveys in Europe and the United States, Purple is the color most often associated with royalty, magic, mystery, and piety. So I wanted to bring that up just one more time to keep it in our memory here as we go along, because what we're going to try and do is to understand why these words are, well, the words that get associated with purple. What is the history behind that? What is, why does purple lend itself to these particular ideas? And, and so we're going to try and flesh that out by talking about some of the history, some of the mythology that surrounds purple. And I think a good place to begin before we get into some of the, the historical data is to start with the myth. And this myth is the discovery of the uh, Tyrian purple dye, which we're going to talk about quite a bit. It was the main dye that was used to color the clothing of the Romans and the Roman Empire and into the Byzantine Empire and and so on. So it was very important source of the color purple for, for uh, the West. And we're going to get into some more global societies, other cultures as well, but I thought that might be a good place to start. So the Myth is about uh, Heracles, actually. Let me read it. Julius Pollux, a Greek grammarian who lived in the 2nd century AD, attributed the discovery of purple to the Phoenician god and guardian of the city of Tyre, Heracles. According to his account, while walking along the shore with the nymph Tyrus, the god's dog bit into a murex shell, causing his mouth to turn purple. The nymph subsequently requested that Heracles create a garment for her of the same color, with Heracles obliging her demands, giving birth to Tyrian purple. Okay, so before we get into some of the history surrounding Tyrian purple and its association with royalty, emperors, that sort of thing, which actually ties in quite nicely with this myth... I thought it might be good to emphasize here, at least, that this myth associates purple with a divine origin, a sacred origin. Now, I I think this myth, it's what it seems to be doing is talking more about Tyrian purple as the dye rather than the color purple itself, but that might be a distinction without a difference because purple is fairly rare in nature and the discovery of a dye is kind of just the color becoming accessible to man for use in in painting and and making clothing textiles all that sort of thing it it's the the color being added to our repertoire so to speak it's a fairly rare color in nature, and so it's not like people could readily produce this color in, in things that we make, things that we create. And so I think that even though this is a origin story of of the dye, it's still representative of of what the color purple might mean, or at least some of the associations that we can draw from it, and as we will see as we go through some of the history, it it lines up quite well with with some of these things that we've discussed already, the magic, mystery, royalty, piety. These these ideas, we'll, we'll start to see them take form over time. But at least in the West, this is a Greek myth surrounding the origin of this die. It is associated with a divine superhuman type of effort from Heracles. And not only that, it is one thing that's interesting is that it is the dog that discovers it by biting into the murex shell. And if you'll remember back to the previous episode when we were talking about some of the amplification methods that Jung and von Franz used to talk about dreams and myths and fairy tales. Uh, Von Franz was talking about in fairy tales how often a hero will get some help from an animal. And if a hero has a helpful animal on his or her side, they will inevitably win or get out of the conflict without... (laughs) It won't be a tragedy. It, It will have a happy ending. That's what she she noticed based on her long and extensive study of fairy tales and myths. And so what I've come to understand by, by reading Jung and von Franz, and not only that, but also examining my own dreams, is that in dream material and in mythologies and, and fairy tales as well, that animals usually tend to represent an, an instinct of some kind. An instinctual part of the psyche, something that is closer to nature but is autonomous, right? And it's interesting that it is the dog, which also has certain afterlife associations as guardians or guides to the afterlife for the underworld, just off the top of my head, Anubis for the Egyptians or Cerberus for the Greeks, comes to mind but so this the dog a a man's best friend helpful animal might represent an instinctual process and this instinctual process is the discoverer of of purple which which we now have access to that we can like nature herself be able to use purple in creative acts which is very interesting and not only that but it might suggest that if purple represents the mysterious the magic the divine that sort of thing the the royalty or or something that is elevated so to speak in both secular and religious domains that if it is discovered by a dog in this myth that what that might suggest is that perhaps there is an inner instinct or modality within us that orients us towards towards the sacred or the divine, which certainly seems reasonable to me. It seems like most societies have some sort of religious instinct, at least for a vast majority of human history, or, or some kind of orientation towards a numinous experience or a, a a an encounter with the sacred or the divine so having an instinctual process within us I, I think that's a very fascinating idea that that we can follow that and it might lead us lead us towards uh towards purple or, or what that represents all right so before we get into some of the history of Tyrian purple and its significance in the Western world, as this story of Heracles and the dog is the origin story of, of the discovery of the dye here in the West, thought it might be at least good to point out that it is not mankind's first encounter with the color purple and, and use of purple in a creative way. For example, going way back to Neolithic cave drawings and cave paintings, early people used certain chemicals and, and ores to make dyes that are somewhat purplish. And the first synthetic-created dye that we have evidence of that is explicitly purple is called Han purple, and it was, came from China in, in 700 B.C., it was actually used to color the famous terracotta army the army of terracotta soldiers and statues that were in the tomb of an emperor what let me look it up real quick it was chishi wang uh in the tomb of emperor Shi uh, wang so and we'll we'll get to talk about some of the significance of purple in the in, in Asia and in China, in particular, and some of the mythology surrounding it. But just wanted to point that out <laughs> uh, as a quick aside before we start getting into some of the discussion of the history of purple in the West. So, while the Han purple in China in 700 BC was the first synthetically, chemically created purple dye, the Tyrian purple is a natural byproduct of the murex snail. So I'm going to read to you a little bit of the process of, of how this dye came to be and I'm doing it for a reason because you'll see how how difficult a process it, it is and why it eventually became associated with royalty and only those who had the power, wealth, to afford it. As early as the 15th century BC, the citizens of Sidon and Tyre, two cities on the coast of ancient Phoenicia, present-day Lebanon, were producing purple dye from a sea snail called the spiny dye murex. Clothing colored with the Tyrian dye was mentioned in both the Iliad of Homer and the Aeneid of Virgil. The deep, rich purple dye made from this snail became known as Tyrian purple. The process of making the dye was long, difficult, and expensive. Thousands of the tiny snails had to be found. Their shells cracked, the snail removed. Mountains of empty shells have been found at the ancient sites of Sidon and Tyre. The snails were left to soak. Then a tiny gland was removed and the juice extracted and put in a basin, which was placed in the sunlight. There, a remarkable transformation took place. In the sunlight, the juice turned white, then yellow-green, then green, then violet, then a red, which turned darker and darker. The process had to be stopped at exactly the right time to obtain the desired color, which could range from a bright crimson to a dark purple the color of dried blood. Then either wool, linen, or silk would be dyed. The exact hue varied between crimson and violet, but it was always rich, bright, and lasting. Tyrian purple became the color of kings, nobles, priests, and magistrates all around the Mediterranean. It was mentioned in the Old Testament. In the book of Exodus, God instructs Moses to have the Israelites bring him an offering, including cloth, of blue and purple and scarlet, to be used in the curtains of the tabernacle and the garments of the priests. The term used for purple in the fourth century Latin Vulgate version of the Bible passage is purpura, or Tyrian purple. In the Iliad of Homer, the belt of Ajax is purple and the tails of the horses of Trojan warriors are dipped in purple. In the Odyssey, the blankets on the wedding bed of Odysseus are purple. In the poems of Sappho, 6th century BC, she celebrates the skill of the dyers of the Greek kingdom of Lydia, who made purple footwear. And in the play of Aeschylus, Queen Clytemnestra welcomes back her husband Agamemnon by decorating the palace with purple carpets. In 950 BC, King Solomon was reported to have brought artisans from Tyre to provide purple fabrics to decorate the Temple of Jerusalem. Alexander the Great, when giving imperial audiences as the Basilius of the Macedonian Empire, the Basilius of the Seleucid Empire, and the kings of Ptolemaic Egypt, all wore Tyrian purple. The Roman custom of wearing purple togas may have come from the Etruscans. An Etruscan tomb painting from the 4th century BC shows a nobleman wearing a deep purple and embroidered toga. The toga picta was solid purple embroidered with gold. During the Roman Republic it was worn by generals in their triumphs and by the Praetor Urbanus when he rode in the chariot of the gods into the circus at the ludia Polinaris. During the empire, the toga picta was worn by magistrates giving public gladiatorial games, and by the consuls, as well as by the emperor on special occasions. During the Roman Republic, when a triumph was held, the general being honored wore an entirely purple toga bordered in gold, and the Roman senators wore a toga with a purple stripe. However, during the Roman Empire, purple was more and more associated exclusively with the emperors and their officers. Suetonius claims that the early emperor Caligula had the king of Mauritania murdered for the splendor of his purple cloak, and that Nero forbade the use of certain purple dyes. In the late empire, the sale of purple cloth became a state monopoly, protected by the death penalty. Jesus Christ, in the hours leading up to his crucifixion, was dressed in purple porphyra by the roman garrison to mock his claim to be quote king of the jews okay so that was a lot of information on tyrian purple but i think it will be useful in our discussion now clearly the the myths surrounding the discovery of tyrian purple must at least give us some some idea as to how people must have been able to figure out how to create this dye. I mean, you hear about some of the ingenuity and some of the creativity of ancient people in finding out how to do certain things, and and you can't help but be amazed at how they, like, you go, how how did they figure out getting a snail and pulling out some of its glands and secretions and letting it sit in sunlight for a certain amount of time and a whole process. And, and it's, I mean, logical for me to think that it was probably a process that someone noticed something was going on with these snails, perhaps when it was bit into or, or whatnot, and then a certain process of experimentation over time to see how to produce this certain dye. But along with this myth, as, as the myth sort of indicated, there's it seems as though there's probably some kind of intuitive element in this as well. That it, it through this process of experimentation and figuring out as early as 1500 BC, is, is what the article had said, that clearly people probably had... We're following a certain bit of intuition and in how to figure out how to extract this dye, which then became so incredibly meaningful and significant and important around the entire Mediterranean, in both secular and religious contexts. Contexts. I mean, Alexander the Great, uh, Roman emperors, <laughs> magistrates, consuls caligula killing somebody for the <laughs> amazing color of his purple cloak you know it's as as that history there indicates it was clearly very important not only not only because of the difficulty of the process of getting the dye but there must have been something that the the color itself had intimated or 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 something psychological going on that the uh, symbolism or the meaning of the color evoked for people to to treat it in such a manner that it applies itself to to all these particular associations that we're trying to uncover the the royalty and and the majesty that sort of thing now it sounds like Tyrian purple from what i read and also the pictures that i've seen online that it it is a somewhat somewhat uh, it's not quite pure purple but it's more of almost a dried blood it's it's almost got a bit of a reddish sort of element to it but you can still clearly tell that it's it's a purple of sorts and so what we're <laughs> in case we need to reiterate which is probably uh, advisable at this point we are talking about a near death experience. And but the reason I'm going through all this in such detail is because I don't want to just tell you, oh, purple means divinity, or oh, purple equals royalty or something like that. I I want you to see this process of amplification and trying to flesh out the full symbolism of a, a given image or a given idea because the experience chose in Melanie's case to represent her soul as purple and like I mentioned before perhaps purple is her favorite color or there's some personal element there but it is not the only time that I've come across purple in a near-death experience it's not an isolated case and so that leads me to think that's Perhaps all of these various associations that we have with the color might intimate some meaning there that the experience drew on to express something about its nature. Let me read you a short excerpt from a different near-death experience. This one is coming from a uh, a man named James and this was an experience that I did not end up doing an episode on, but I found very interesting nonetheless. The next part is hard to describe, but I'll do my best to convey what I experienced. The jolt I instantly knew was the touch of God. In that moment, I felt a connection to everything that ever did or ever would exist. It was like seeing the fabric of space and reality it was like seeing all of creation and feeling unity with it for some reason i associate the word purple with this but have no idea why okay so in that brief little passage from james's near death experience he has an encounter with the divine with god and he he describes a the touch of god being like a jolt and it creates these amazing feelings of unity of oneness with creation of with the universe and inexplicably he describes this sensation this amazing moment of oneness with god as purple so uh, while there could obvi- obviously in both cases be personal associations for both james and melanie with the color purple the historical And cultural and mythological symbolism that surrounds this color, I think, points to something deeper, to something within mankind as a whole, which we will also get to once we start talking about purple in in various other cultures, that it's not just a Western, uh, European, American sort of uh, list of associations, uh, ideas surrounding the color purple that it is, it's is—it's truly uh, global, and that points to something deep within us, that the psyche associates with this particular color certain meanings, and, and that's what we are trying to flesh out. Like I said, I don't just want to uh, read off a list of meanings and then move on. I I, I want to really dive in so we can understand what truly this this experience is communicating not only to melanie but to all of us as she has been so so brave and courageous to to want to share her experience and trying to figure out like i said what what that means so not only can we see in the secular context that purple is associated with let's say the the thing of highest value the rulers of society the emperors the uh, their generals their consuls all of their you know higher up officials and that sort of thing but we also got examples of how purple was used in a religious context as well and i think talking about these religious meanings of, of purple will be quite useful because in both the case of, of Melanie and James they encountered the color purple during overt religious experiences and James associated with it with the touch of God that jolted through him and Melanie associated the color with, with the color of her very own essence or soul so I think its use in a particular religious and spiritual domain is going to be very illustrative of what the meaning of purple might be. So I was very fascinated to learn that God had commanded Moses to cover up the tabernacle or to make construct the tabernacle using a cloth made of purple and indigo and scarlet the tabernacle was the holiest of holies the dwelling place of yahweh the place that the hebrews could go to commune with god the inner sanctum or the the holy place that is a tent that they constructed in a certain manner by using certain rules and certain figures and and metrics Uh, which were given by God, I believe. And it was the resting place or the the place that housed the Ark of the Covenant. So clearly it was a a very holy, the most holy place, especially during the Exodus. Let me just read about it real quick. It was constructed of four woven layers of curtains and 48 15-foot-tall standing wood boards overlaid in gold and held in place by its bars and silver sockets, and was richly furnished with valuable materials taken from Egypt at God's orders. Moses was instructed at Mount Sinai to construct and transport the tabernacle with the Israelites on their journey through the wilderness and their subsequent conquest of the promised land. After 440 years, Solomon's temple in Jerusalem superseded it as the dwelling place of God. So there were a couple reasons that I wanted to point this out. So not only in the tabernacle, but also the temple of Solomon, the color purple was used to cover and to create and to dress the dwelling place of the most holy, the dwelling place of the earthly dwelling place of God. Is fascinating, and I wanted to emphasize that because we will also see purple associated with the dwelling place of a deity in the Chinese context later in the episode as we get into some of the more global associations and and what it means. But it's it's fascinating that you get it <laughs> you get it in uh, in the Hebrews and the Israelites in the Old Testament, and we will also see it in Chinese mythology as a particular dwelling place of of a celestial emperor so that makes me think that there's there's something here that is common to mankind that again we're trying to dig into using near death experiences as our starting place our jumping off point to understand what is being illustrated in these experiences that which are spontaneous and autonomous they are not chosen they are they happen to the individual so in this case I thought it was fascinating that there was not only purple that was used as as fabric to create the tabernacle to cover cover the inside and the the various curtains but there was also indigo and crimson that there were curtains of these three different colors and the reason that stood out to me was because purple really at least the the purple that we've been discussing I think really is the unifier of both those other two colors indigo is closer to a sort of blue purple it's on the the blue side of the spectrum whereas crimson clearly is a a darkish red and so what purple is doing in in this holiest of places <laughs> this extremely sacred divine um structure the a purple between those those two flanks of indigo and scarlet purple is the unifier of those purple is is what unifies the blue and the red of of the indigo and the scarlet that the purple is where it it meets and so that makes it particularly uh meaningful as as the bringer together of of these opposites between blue and red and that is associated with the place that that housed the ark of the covenant the the place that housed Yahweh and and one could commune with God it's 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 just incredibly meaningful that that union of opposites coming together in the purple with the color purple, bringing the spectrum together. And, and so that is a very important example of, of how this color is used in this particular religious context. And I think it's probably not a coincidence that the, all the other, Associations with royalty and emperors and Christ are connected to that. I don't think it's a... I think it would be putting the cart before the horse to say, oh, this color, the only reason it was used in all of these very important, sacred, royal settings was because it was difficult to produce. I think the color itself at least meets that halfway in in what the color evokes in us psychologically okay because it it would be a very cynical thing to say oh all of this stuff was just because it was just because it was hard to produce and they had to milk a bunch of snails in order to get, get this particular color i don't i don't think that quite explains it uh, at all, I, I think that the the deeper intimations of of what the color evokes in the psyche, at least archetypally, I think that is the crucial component in why this color was used in these, like I said, <laughs> indescribably important contexts, royalty. Of dressing up the place, the earthly dwelling place of God, right? If you had to decorate an apart- apartment or a house for God to live in, how would you do that? <laughs> it's a crazy, crazy thought, but I mean, that's it's what we're dealing with. At least, what these people at that time were were having to do, or, or were felt the necessity to do being called by God to to create a certain uh structure that that they could commune with him in to house the holiest of the holies i mean that's not something to be i don't know explained away i think there's there's a lot of depth there that that goes beyond just a simple a simple i don't know socioeconomic sort of explanation of the price tag associated with this particular die, I think it, I think it has deeper resonance. And like I said, the, the reason that we are exploring this is because it has appeared in religious experiences of people today. So let's try and figure out what that is. So, now to continue our amplification of the meaning and symbolism of the color purple, this web of ideas and instances and historical data surrounding the color as we slowly weave this web, hopefully not too slowly, but (laughs) we'll now get into some of the post-Roman world how purple was used in the early church for Christianity, in the Byzantine Empire, and in medieval Europe. Through the early Christian era, the rulers of the Byzantine Empire continued the use of purple as the imperial color, for diplomatic gifts, and even for imperial documents and pages of the Bible. Gospel manuscripts were written in gold lettering on parchment that was colored Tyrian purple. Empresses gave birth in the Purple Chamber, and the emperors born there were known as, quote, born to the purple, to separate them from emperors who won or seized the title through political intrigue or military force. Bishops of the Byzantine Church wore white robes with stripes of purple, while government officials wore squares of purple fabric to show their rank. In Western Europe, the Emperor Charlemagne was crowned in year 800 wearing a mantle of Tyrian purple, and was buried in 814 in a shroud of the same color, which still exists. However, after the fall of Constantinople to the Ottoman Turks in 1453, the color lost its imperial status. The great dye works of Constantinople were destroyed, and gradually scarlet, made with dye from the cochineal insect, became the royal color in Europe. In the West, purple or violet is the color most associated with piety and religious faith. In AD 1464, shortly after the Muslim conquest of Constantinople, which terminated the supply of Tyrian purple to Roman Catholic Europe, Pope Paul II decreed that cardinals should henceforth wear scarlet instead of purple. The scarlet being dyed with expensive cochineal, Bishops were assigned the color amaranth, being a pale and pinkish purple, made then from a less expensive mixture of indigo and cochineal. In the Latin rite of the Roman Catholic liturgy, purple symbolizes penitence. Anglican and Catholic priests wear a purple stole when they hear confession, and a purple stole and chasuble during Advent and Lent. Since the Second Vatican Council of 1962 to 1965, priests may wear purple vestments but may still wear black ones when officiating at funerals. The Roman Missal permits black, purple, or white vestments for the funeral mass. White is worn when a child dies before the age of reason. Students in faculty of theology also wear purple academic dress for graduations and other university ceremonies. Purple is also often worn by senior pastors of Protestant churches and bishops of the Anglican Communion. Okay, so here we see a continued outgrowth of this purple symbolism in history. The Byzantines continued the tradition of the the Romans using purple as a royal color, right? The Emperors that are born in the purple chamber the empresses giving birth in the purple chamber the king literally coming into the world in in a purple room and and giving spawning this phrase born to the purple as born to wealth and so that's a fascinating sort of continuation of the same idea it's like a King is as close as man can get to divine authority, divine power. An emperor is as close as a human being can get. As, I mean, at least pragmatically, to being a god, right? Unless, and even in certain certain societies, kings have been revered as gods. And so here we we continue to have this use of purple associated with the most holy, the most royal, the most uh, highest value. The thing of highest value is associated with purple, and that continues. It continues into use by the Roman Catholic Church. It represents penitence and faith, piety. It's associated with Christ, because Christ was king of kings, although that's a continuation of the Royal symbolism, which was present in the Roman Empire, but it is a significant color for the church and is used up until the conquest of Constantinople when the dye works were shut down, where they switched to scarlet for the cardinals. But before we get too far out of the Middle Ages, there was something that I, I wanted to share because I came across it in a book I'm reading and it, it was related to the color purple. I'm reading The Grail Legend by Emma Jung, who was Carl Jung's wife. Her lifelong project was the study of the Holy Grail and King Arthur and the knights and all the mythology surrounding the Holy Grail, and it's a fascinating book, and she's not only relating the story itself, but also what it means psychologically. But I was reading a part where she was talking about the lance that uh, allegedly pierced Christ's side while he was on the cross. And she shared the accounts of certain soldiers who, during the Crusades in 1098, thought they had found this sacred lance of Longinus which had pierced Christ. So I wanted to share this and give you an example of how the church still viewed the color purple and how they used it at this time. This is coming from a work by German author Albert von Aschen. Quote, In the midst of these sufferings, of famine and of the anxieties of the siege, And of the worries concerning the ambushes and assaults which the Turks carried out unremittingly against the humiliated and despairing people of God, a cleric from Provence asserted one day that it had been revealed to him in a vision where the lance which had once pierced our Lord's side was lying. This cleric notified the Lord Bishop Adhemar of Puy and Count Raymond of the spot where they might find the precious treasure of the lance to wit in the church of St. Peter, the Prince of the Apostles. There they dug and found the lance. And they showed the lance that had been found in that church to all the Christian princes, and spread abroad the tidings of this discovery, and wrapped the lance in precious stuff of purple. And this revelation and showing of the lance occasioned great hope and joy for the people of Christ everywhere and they venerated the relic with great solemnity and with countless offerings of gold and silver. Okay, so this was just something that I came across while doing some reading on the Holy Grail and its symbolism. But it's just fascinating to to see it, in, in at least in a historical account, like in action. These... Princes and these knights think that they found the actual spear or lance which which pierced Jesus. And the first thing that they do is they wrap it in purple. Now this very much might be a reference to the tabernacle or other uses of purple in the Bible, which I'm sure there are other points where it makes an appearance. But it just shows the intense significance and meaning of this this holy color purple i mean imagine if you thought you had found the lance or spear which had pierced jesus on the cross the the first thing that they do is is wrap it up in purple and now i don't think this was actually the the spear i mean they were there's all sorts of relic hunting of people finding bits of this or that or saints or cross or, you know, There's all, there was all sorts of this stuff going on during the Crusades. And so it kind of doesn't really matter whether it was the actual spear or not. The significance to these people was that it was the actual relic, the actual lance that had stabbed God himself. So this is just a very hard-hitting example of how deeply meaningful and sacred this color is and how it was used and thought of by the church in this medieval period. I also wanted to point out that in regards to how the church used the color purple, the last thing we read, we started to see how Uh, The color purple was associated with death and mourning. For instance, it said that Charlemagne's shroud was purple and that Roman Catholic priests could use the color purple for their vestments for the funeral mass. So here we're starting to weave in another association into our web, into our amplification. We're kind of circling around the central idea of purple and and figuring out what some of the connections are, some of the associated ideas to really dive down as deeply as we can and see if we can make connections to Melanie's near-death experience and the experience of James, which I had mentioned. And for instance, there was a custom in Victorian England where For the first year after someone had died, the widow mourned by wearing black. And then for the second year after the passing of the individual, they could wear purple. So purple was also associated with death in a somewhat secular sense. That goes beyond just the use by the church. But here again, we're starting to, to close in around... Around this idea of purple, the penitence, the piety, the royalty, the mystery, the connection with God, the connection with death. Now, ideally, in this process of amplification and trying to plumb the depths of a particular image or a symbol, what we would start with is the personal associations. What does Melanie think of the color purple? But we don't have that, and we don't have a whole lot to go off of based on her account. So we move out into the broader culture that that Melanie comes from. In this case, she's from the UK. So we've talked about the history of the color purple in the West from the Greeks, its uh, appearance in the Old Testament, how it came into christianity and and moved through the ages and and it still it has this coherence of a particular meaning, those particular attributes that I had laid out just a second ago, all those different things, and they they line up quite well with what people today think of the color purple, like I had mentioned in the overview that's associated with magic, mystery, royalty. And so we're starting to get a a solid sense of the full breadth of what this color is. But to really find out if it is something that is human, that is cross-cultural, we have to expand out to other cultures and societies and see what the... History and associations with purple are abroad because if we really want to try and try and see if there's something that is common to all of us that that is universal, we have to look at how purple appears and what it's associated with in uh, as many different contexts as we can because. If a particular religious experience is using the color to express something, perhaps perhaps that can tell us something about the human condition and the place we're in and what it means to be human. And, th- and that's why I'm taking the, such, <laughs> such a, a long time to really really get into this at such a granular level, because I think it's worth it, not only to understand Melanie's experience, but for us, just anyone listening, if one of us has a inner experience which features the color purple, I mean, this might be a sort of resource that that people can use to not only have that particular definition of this color, but also see the method of of how we can come to understand things that have a a great depth to them and how to live symbolic lives, to keep that symbolic mindset operating while we go about our daily lives because we run into all sorts of things that have these just vast and, and fascinating histories that we don't think twice about and we don't know what to make of, but they affect us. And so... Again, I, I don't want to belabor the point, but it I feel like it's very important. And so now that we've been through some of the Western history and Western associations with the color, I think now we can take a look at some East Asian associations with the color purple. So I'm going to read those. In China, purple represents spiritual awareness, physical and mental healing, strength, and abundance. A red-purple symbolizes luck and fame. The Chinese word for purple, zi, is connected with the North Star, Polaris, or zi-wei in Chinese. In Chinese astrology, the North Star was the home of the Celestial Emperor, the ruler of the heavens. The area around the North Star is called the Purple Forbidden Enclosure in Chinese astronomy. For that reason, the Forbidden City in Beijing was also known as the Purple Forbidden City, Sheng. Purple was a popular color introduced into Japanese dress during the Heian period, 794-1185. The dye was made from the root of the alkanet plant, also known as Murasaki in Japanese. At about the same time, Japanese painters began to use a pigment made from the same plant. In Thailand, widows in mourning wear the color purple. Purple is also associated with Saturday on the Thai solar calendar. Okay, so there are a couple things worth pointing out here. First off, that we have a general coherence with some of the meanings that we, have, we had talked about in the Western case also appear to be the case here in these East Asian cultures. For instance, the for the Thai culture, the association with death and mourning. It's connected with Saturday, and I don't know if Saturday has a particular meaning in in the Thai culture, but at least here in the West, Saturday is the day most closely associated with death. It's the day of Saturn, and Saturn was the reaper, the old man, its sickness and death, the Saturn as a planet has a lot of associations with decay and, and the end of life. So, just that that basic connection there is just fascinating to see. And I imagine, perhaps, uh, in the Thai culture, Saturday might be a day associated with death. I mean, it is the last day of the week, after all. So, it's just a interesting relation to point out. But... We also have the other previously mentioned connections that, such as with royalty, uh, the aristocracy and the emperor in Japan wore purple and purple was connected with them. In the Chinese case, it was associated with uh, a lot of good things, abundance, uh, spiritual strength, physical and mental healing which I think is very important to point out, especially since we are talking about this in reference to Melanie's experience in which as this thread of purple frost, she experienced great inner healing during a very difficult time uh, going through treatment for cancer. So here we bring in that the connection with purple and and an idea of healing as well. And I want to dial in a little bit on the use of purple in the Chinese case in regards to the Forbidden City and the North Star and the Celestial Emperor because I think it's going to touch on a really fascinating idea that that we had discussed previously. So I'm going to read a little bit more about the Forbidden City. The common English name, Forbidden City, is a translation of the Chinese name Zijin Chang, Purple Forbidden City. The name Zijin Chang first formally appeared in 1576. Another English name of similar origin is Forbidden Palace. The name Zijin Chang is a name with significance on many levels. Z, or purple, refers to the North Star, which in ancient China was called the Zwei Star and in traditional Chinese astrology was the heavenly abode of the Celestial Emperor. The surrounding Celestial region, the Ziwei Enclosure, was the realm of the Celestial Emperor and his family. The Forbidden City, as the residence of the Terrestrial Emperor, was its earthly counterpart. Jin or forbidden referred to the fact that no one could enter or leave the palace without the Emperor's permission. Chang means a city. Okay, There's a lot to unpack here, and what I want to start with first is by pointing out that the Chinese associated the North Star with the color purple, and called it the, the purple star, essentially, from what I can tell. Now, I think that's significant because there are other cultural beliefs that are attached to the North Star and its association with the afterlife and death. You may remember back to some of the earlier episodes we've done, uh, particularly when we've brought in the book On Dreams and Death by Marie-Louise von Franz, in which she talked about how the circumpolar stars and the stars around the North Pole Uh, for the Egyptians were associated with the afterlife and with and the continuation of the soul after death. And so I wanted to read a little bit about a little more about that flesh that out because here, here we have a direct relation between certain Chinese ideas of the association of purple with the North Star and the abode of this celestial emperor and the North Star in, the, in Egyptian mythology and spiritual belief was the uh, afterlife, so I wanted to read a little more about that. The Indestructibles, literally the ones not knowing destruction, was the name given by ancient Egyptian astronomers to two bright stars which, at that time, could always be seen circling the North Pole. The name is directly related to Egyptian belief in constant north as a portal to heaven for pharaohs and the star's close association with eternity and the afterlife. Egyptologist Toby Wilkinson explained the naming as apt metaphor in Egyptian ideology. Circumpolar stars are a very good metaphor for the afterlife because when viewed, they never seem to set. They simply rotate around the pole star. They are the undying stars, or in Egyptian terminology, the indestructibles, a perfect destination for the soul of a dead king. End quote. All right, so while we can quite easily recognize that the never-setting stars around the North Pole would be a good metaphor or symbolic of the afterlife, I don't think the ancient Egyptians saw it the same way I would venture to say that they probably uh, enacted the metaphor unconsciously that there was no there's no abstracting the idea away from the image itself or the the viewing of the stars it was that was the afterlife actually there it was unconscious there was there was no ability to say step back and say, "Oh, well, it, perhaps it's a metaphor for us continuing after death." I don't, I don't think, I don't think that's how we operate. I think it was, it was a unconscious projection association of the afterlife with the stars, based on their nature and how they move. That that it caught the projection of of that. Something in the psyche which expressed itself, and I think the same is the case with all the different examples, to some degree, <laughs> of what we've been talking about with purple, and for the Chinese, that for some reason they associated purple with the North Star, and with the abode of this this celestial emperor. And I want to share a little more information about him so we understand what we're dealing with in this particular case. And I know that this is all a little bit uh, brief, that I could go into even more depth about these various historical and cultural data. I mean, there's almost no end to the amount of depth you could go, but for our purposes, I think this will do. The Jade Emperor in Chinese culture, traditional religions, and myth is one of the representations of the first god. In Taoist theology, he is the assistant of Yuan Shi Tianzun, who is one of the three pure ones, the three primordial emanations of the Tao. He is the Taoist ruler of heaven and all realms of existence below, including that of man and hell. According to a version of Taoist mythology, he is one of the most important gods of the Chinese traditional religion pantheon. So, I think there are some great things to emphasize here in relation to this Jade Celestial Emperor. For one, the connection between the earthly palace and royalty in the Forbidden City with the celestial palace, and for the the purple forbidden enclosure with the celestial emperor. It, it just shows the relation between the secular and the divine in a way, or the sacred, and that that connection is purple, essentially. That the purple of royalty is is coming from the, the sacrality or the divine nature of, of purple and what it represents in a religious or sacred sense, that there's a relation there between the mundane world and the the world of the beyond. And so that is very interesting, particularly because it's it's an explicit link drawn between the two, that the earthly palace is purple and so is the celestial palace. And this jade emperor... Uh, I was reading a little bit more about him, and it sounds like he's quite involved in many creation myths and myths surrounding uh, in the Chinese uh, Taoistic tradition. And I, I think you could make certain relations to a sort of uh, a relation to the Yahweh or or the God of the Old Testament, not... Obviously there's there's so much there and, and you can only do this sort of in passing and I don't want to overstate it, but it sounds as though he is a somewhat important creator God for in the Chinese spiritual tradition. And what's interesting is that as we had mentioned before, the tabernacle the holiest of holies the earthly dwelling place of yahweh in the old testament was covered in purple curtains along with indigo and and scarlet but purple was sort of the the color that was associated with with the earthly domain of god and here in a completely separate culture separated by thousands of miles and thousands of years, the we almost have a similar sort of setup with ideas surrounding this celestial jade emperor that his domain, his dwelling is purple, the purple forbidden enclosure. And not only that, but it's counterpart on earth the forbidden city is also purple so we have all this stuff going on and i know i hope it's not sounding crazy or something but it just shows you how interpenetrating a lot of this symbolic stuff can be and and i think hopefully you're starting to to see how how connected all of this stuff sort of is and how it all fits together at least cross culturally and what that indicates to me not only that we have purple appearing in similar ways in vastly different cultures in vastly different time periods up including up and including the the modern day in the form of modern day near death experiences i think that at least suggests that there is something that purple captures that is uh, common or or universal to all of us, that we all can partake in. And just to to fully round that out, I wanted to share just two more little uh, facts surrounding purple's use in other cultures. In western Polynesia, residents of the islands made a purple dye similar to Tyrian purple from the sea urchin. In Central America, the inhabitants made a dye from a different sea snail, the purpura, found on the coasts of Costa Rica and Nicaragua. The Mayans used this color to dye fabric for religious ceremonies, while the Aztecs used it for paintings of ideograms, where it symbolized royalty. Okay, so those just show some other vastly (laughs) uh, separated world cultures that have found uses for this color. Now, I don't know how it was used in the Polynesian case or in Costa Rica, but the bit about the Mayan and Aztec use of it, the Aztec's association of it with royalty, I think coheres quite nicely with what we've discussed before. And again, they these dyes are coming from different sea creatures, and I think that that probably has a symbolism in itself, the sea being the unknown or, or the resting place of the dead, that sort of thing, that that is where this color is coming from. Okay, so we've discussed a fairly wide-ranging uh, survey of the use of the color purple in many different religious and historical contexts, but why don't we try and finish off by bringing it to the present day and discussing some of the other sides of purple as we see them in the modern world. Now, as you can probably tell, not only from this episode, but from past episodes, that symbolism doesn't tend to be one thing. That just as much as a tree can represent life in a certain se- uh, circumstance, in another context it can represent death, that symbolism is sort of uh, equivocal, that it, it doesn't quite fit into one thing. And so just as much as there are beautiful, powerful, majestic sides to purple that we associate with the divine and so on, there are also more negative sides to the color, which I feel like would be worthwhile to at least bring up, although they don't particularly, I think, resonate with Melanie's experience or the other experience of of James that we had mentioned. But as a full sort of continuum of the of the spectrum of what the color can be and and what it means nowadays, I feel like it would at least be good to touch on. So I'm just going to read a couple of the more modern and darker associations with the color. In Europe and America, purple is the color most associated with vanity extravagance and individualism among the seven major sins it represents vanity it is a color which is used to attract attention purple is the color most often associated with the artificial and the unconventional it is the major color that occurs the least frequently in nature and was the first color to be synthesized purple is the color most associated with ambiguity Like other colors made by combining two primary colors, it is seen as uncertain and equivocal. Okay, so as if purple couldn't get any more ambiguous than we've already discussed, but like I said, to get a full, well-rounded picture of of what we're dealing with, I think it is important to at least touch on these different things. And at least in modern culture, I think... The ambiguity and and some of those darker aspects is is at least self-evident. For instance, I mean, what do we think of? Purple Haze, the song by Jimi Hendrix associated with drugs. Haziness uh, of not being able to tell what's what. Uh, Purple Rain by Prince. Uh, I love that song. I love both those songs, but uh, I guess that's somewhat associated with a bit of androgyny in Prince's performance and and, and how he presented his artistic persona. So as purple is such a, an ambiguous color, it, it catches both light and dark aspects, right? Even in the, as we had mentioned before, the scientific sense, purple is not a spectral color on the wavelength or continuum of light it's it's a sort of word that we use to capture a this range that can go anywhere in between these red and blue and so some of these darker aspects such as the uh, associations with extravagance or vanity i mean those those are the dark side of royalty right the extravagance, the opulence, the materialism, the vanity. That would be just the dark side of the of the earlier association that we had mentioned with, with kings and emperors and royalty and that sort of thing. And so that makes sense. I think that follows naturally. And perhaps in a more modern co- context, that's what we can tend to associate with the color. But... Just to put a final point on how this color emerges in our own culture, in our own times, and has this ambiguous nature to it, I wanted to draw attention to two vastly different uh, characters in pop culture that are associated with the color purple. And I think another thing that this will show is that the psyche in our and if symbolism does not distinguish between religious or secular it happens automatically we we draw these metaphors unconsciously and project them onto whatever cultural forms that we encounter whether they are religious in character or whether they're pop culture figures so the two characters that I wanted to point out were, on the one hand, Willy Wonka, and on the other hand, the Joker, uh, Batman's villain. Now, I know those are very different, and I know this is kind of silly, but I just want, like I said, it, 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 the symbolism happens regardless. Now, both characters wear the color purple. Willy Wonka is a, let's say, positive figure and the joker is a villain and here's where the ambiguity of the color purple i think really really captures both characters because they're both kind of crazy in a way they're both mad they well one is clearly good and one is clearly bad but both are somewhat ambiguous like <laughs> willy wonka is the hero and he's the crazy guy who lives in the factory and you go through and all of this somewhat surreal and absurd things are happening with these kids, but he's the good guy and stuff, but he's still kind of making, he's not really acting too concerned when kids have horrible accidents happen to them and that sort of thing, but he's still charming and I mean, he's a great character. But, so, there's that ambiguity while he's a good guy he's he's kind of got a weird edge to him. I mean, God, that whole tunnel sequence if you've seen the movie where they're i mean that's that's madness, and at the same time, the Joker is clearly mad out of his mind, a homicidal maniac, Batman's arch nemesis, and he kills people and he's awful, but at the same time bringing this am- ambiguity in of the color purple it's he's associated with humor and tricks and jokes and so it's this weird juxtaposition of murder and laughter and so i know like i said these are just kind of silly and and things things that we don't often think about but it's present you know the the purple is is a color that is associated with the bringing together of the opposites in that ambiguity in that sort of divine madness in and, and one side being expressed positively and on the other sa- side being expressed uh negatively uh, a hero and a villain both having aspects that that purple represents that connection to a divine nature and and like any symbolic image can be, the divine can be just as dark as it can be light. And I think we need only look at the world for a second to see that. And so I think purple is the perfect color to capture that that ambiguity, that in-betweenness. And that is something that is transcendental, something associated with the divine. Something associated with royalty, mystery, magic, with death. And why do I spend so much time on just talking about a color and how it appears to us? Because I think we need to understand the symbolism. The symbol- symbolism that happens whether we like it or not. That conditions the way we see the world, the way we see ourselves. The things we see inside of ourselves and a near-death experience. In Melanie's case, her soul was purple. And purple represents an in-betweenness, an ambiguity between two two opposites. And that is something that we very frequently see associated with near-death experiences and the divine. In the case of James, he described the touch of God, the jolt of coming in contact with God, and the unity and the profound nature that, that he glimpsed. He described that inexplicably as purple. And so we find ourselves living in two different worlds in our daily lives. There is the outer objective world that we all have to agree on, statistics and the objects and the science that sort of thing and then we each have an inner world which while there are broad patterns and motifs and archetypes that we can look to each for each of us it is going to be expressed in a somewhat different way but we can take these little common nodes such as the meaning of the color purple and we can examine that and see how it is similar in all of us and so we have to live in two worlds simultaneously and that's a very difficult thing to do and so i think purple is a good way of describing that we need to be more purple Because you can't have one at the exclusion of the other. Alright, so I think we will wrap up there. Just so you know, I am not going to be going into this same level of detail with each word (laughs) in Melanie's Near-Death Experience. The next episode will focus on the symbolism of frost and crystals which she described as the form that her soul took but after that we're going to get more into just the broad elements of the other parts of her experience because we barely barely gotten very far and i hope that's that's okay i mean like i said i'm doing this because i don't want to just tell you oh purple equals X or purple equals death. You know, I want I want you to understand how I get there and the process, the process of amplifying a symbolic image. And hopefully that's interesting, hopefully that's useful. Like I said, if one of us comes across purple in, in one of our dreams or out in the world, whatever, you know, I hope it's at least interesting. But just, just so you know, I'm not going to break down each syllable and each word in such a deep analysis. But, but for the major images of, of Melanie's experience, I would like to give them a, a significant amount of attention. Because as I mentioned in the previous episode, that she was quite confused and bewildered by, by what she saw. And I think it's worth taking that time if it can give us some insight into ourselves. So part three will will be coming next, and we will be talking about the um, symbolism surrounding crystals. And, I mean, there's there's a lot there, and I think it will be quite interesting. So thank you very much for listening. If you would like to send me an email or get in touch with me, uh, you can do so by reaching out at samreadsneardeathexperiences at com. You can check out our Facebook page. We are on Spotify, on YouTube. I need to get a couple of the more recent episodes up there, but um, if you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe, tell a friend, please leave a five-star review on whatever podcast app that you're using. And uh, thank you. And uh, I... Really enjoy doing this, and I'm. I hope you all get something out of it. And again, thanks to Melanie for wishing to share her experience. And although I'm, you know, taking my sweet time going through it, I, like I said, I just hope it helps because, because that's what we need. That's what we need to do. So now we will end with a quote on death. Okay. So, because a good chunk of this episode focused on Tyrian purple and its use in the Roman world, I actually found a quote from uh, the Roman Emperor Julian that I thought might be an appropriate way to end this particular episode. So, this quote was said by Julian upon being elevated to the level or the status of Caesar by uh, Constantius II. And this quote might be paraphrased from the Iliad by Homer, but Julian apparently said it because often becoming Caesar had been fatal to others who had uh, undertaken that. So this was the quote which he said upon becoming Caesar. By purple death I'm seized and fate supreme.